Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcasts person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today we're joined by President of Shopify, Harley Finkelstein, to discuss the importance of Black Friday for businesses and entrepreneurship in the digital age. From micro-influencers to YouTube megastars, the world of business has changed significantly in recent years. In this episode, Hardy Finkelstein speaks to executive editor of The Economist, Anne McElvoy, about how entrepreneurs have adapted to new trends and evolved their business strategies in response to the online world. Today's episode is in partnership with Shopify, and if you want to find out more about how you can start, run, and grow a business, then visit shopify.com. But now let's go to our host, Anne McElvoy, with more. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared with me, Anne McElvoy. I'm very excited to introduce our guest and our subject today. The subject is Shopify and entrepreneurship in the digital age, which appeals to me because I'm fascinated by tech innovation and I also shop a lot. And fittingly, our guest is Harley Finkelstein, business person, entrepreneur, public speaker, best known as president of Shopify, which is the multinational commerce platform allowing entrepreneurs to start up, run and grow business. Hi there, Harley. Hey, Anne. Great to be here. And thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, very cool to hear that the Venn diagram overlap of, of technology and, and shopping uh, is coming together for this particular episode. You definitely got the right host on this one, I can assure you. And I'm just going to start perhaps by getting our terms out there a bit. I mean, Shopify sounds like it, it does what the name suggests, but it is really a place of many levels and many functions. And it's also a kind of business in its own right, which is acting as a subscription service. Am I broadly right? You are broadly right. Really, the, the mission of Shopify is to increase the amount of entrepreneurs on the planet. And we do so by making it really easy to get started. You know, someone sitting at their mom's kitchen table can start a business on Shopify for $29 or something like that. And then over time, as that business gets really big, becomes, you know, Gymshark or Allbirds or, you know, Viore or, you know, Figs or frankly, even some of the large CPGs like Procter & Gamble can also continue to sell on Shopify. 
I think the thing that most people get wrong about Shopify is because we are so well known to be an e-commerce provider, most people assume that we make it easy to sell online only. And actually, our view is that the future retail is retail everywhere. I know we'll get into that later on in, in our conversation, but we make it really easy to sell in store and in person. We make it really easy to sell on places like Instagram and TikTok and Snap and, and Pinterest and, and everywhere in between. And then the other part that I think people get wrong about Shopify is that if you were to pretend that Shopify was a single retailer, uh, we're not a retailer, we have millions of stores that use Shopify, but if you were to aggregate all those stores, we would be the second largest online retailer in America. And so the reason I mention that is because part of what we've been doing the last few years is going ahead and finding all the other friction points or, or problem areas in building a real great commerce or retail business, like shipping and fulfillment and payments and capital and international selling and making it really easy to sort of, you know, leveraging these economies of scale to level the playing field so that if you are starting a business today at your mom's kitchen table, anywhere in the world, the payment rates you were getting, the shipping rates that you were getting, your ability to access capital is effectively the same as someone who is working in a very large company. And that leveling of the playing field is really our mission. Yeah, it's funny. I was just about to say it is kind of flattening off what used to be in a hierarchy, depending on you know, how much your backers would, would back you or indeed how successful you were already. And the fact that you're supporting so many breakthrough businesses seems to me particularly important and exciting. Let's look to Black Friday, huge, of course, in North America and has crossed the pond as an idea and a good way to prod us to, to spend rather than save for the holidays. But it is a very difficult time in terms of economic backdrop in most places. How important is this Black Friday specifically to you? It is really important. Uh, it's important to us. It's also important to the millions of stores that use Shopify. I mean, it is it is the biggest commerce moment uh, of the year. And Part of that is, you know, merchants' desire to sell and 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 also the consumer's interest in purchasing products, often at a discounted price. And, and so, you know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, or you know, BFCM as the industry calls it, has grown over the years to be, you know, not just a weekend, a four-day weekend from Friday to Monday, but but actually more of a shopping season. And more and more what we are seeing is it's starting even earlier, uh, starting in early November. We see the highest participation from merchant consumers over the Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend kind of starts the 1st of, of, of November or the end of October. But it really is a very crucial sales period for entrepreneurs and businesses. 73%, um, this is a really interesting stat, 73% of businesses worldwide say that they're planning for a pretty big Black Friday, Cyber Monday. And in the US and Spain, it actually rises to about 80% and 79% respectively. So I think you know the key here is that all year round, but in particular during these these key shopping season, our top motivator is to help merchants. And um, we've been at this for about 16 years or so. And I think this year in particular is one of the most important ones, specifically because this is really the first Black Friday and Cyber Monday kind of post-pandemic. And I think a lot has changed in terms of how we look at commerce and how we look at retail today. Well, that was exactly where my mind was going with that. We think the sort of nervousness that we had last year, certainly the year before when we were fully into pandemic mode about going shopping at all and the sense of sort of pulling back a bit from life, that is not there, certainly not in, in so many places. But has it affected consumer behaviour compared to the years when social distancing was at the forefront of people's thinking, maybe they weren't going out so much? Is there a return to a sort of, you know, yip de doo let me go out and purchase or indeed purchase online? Or do we learn habits of caution that are maybe not so good for retailers or for, for people whose platforms support them? Yeah, I mean, 
if you think about sort of the main equation or metric that most people really consider when they talk about sort of the future of commerce or future of retail is the e-commerce penetration rate, which is a very simple equation, right? In the numerator, it is e-commerce sales. And in the denominator, it's total retail sales. And during the pandemic, kind of two things happened. The numerator went up, obviously, e-commerce went up dramatically. And then obviously, the denominator at the bottom went down because you kind of remove physical retail. So now that physical retail is reopening, and we'll talk about this because it's getting really interesting right now what's happening in physical retail, which is by far, it is, it is not dead at all. In fact, there is absolutely a reemergence of in-person shopping, which uh, we're, we're, a lot of it we're, we're powering ourselves. But it looked like during the pandemic, you saw this massive increase in e-commerce penetration. And today, now that re physical retail is reopening, there's sort of this concern that, well, what has happened in e-commerce? Well, what's really interesting is that e-commerce has reset on a much higher base. So, you know, my grandparents, for example, who are in their uh, 89 years old, my grandmother, my grandfather's 91, even though, you know, I've been the leader of Shopify for a long time, they never bought online. The pandemic happened and they discover things like Instacart and Uber Eats and they discovered online shopping for the first time because they had no choice. Well, now that stores have reopened here in Canada and all over the world, they're still using Instacart, and they're still using DoorDash, and they're still buying stuff online. So the e-commerce growth rate in the two years of the pandemic have, have obviously exploded. And now they're kind of going back to 2019 growth rates, but on a much, much higher base. Now, to answer your question directly, because it's an important question in terms of what happened in terms of consumer spending and what is happening now, given that we're kind of in this really tough place from a macroeconomy perspective. So here's what we are seeing. Certainly, consumer spending is, is, is more considered. But there are a couple things that we are seeing from consumers. In fact, to understand this much better, we, we just conducted a, a global study of more than 24,000 consumers and 9,000 SMBs in 12 markets in, in Europe and in North America and in APAC. And the findings show that there is a shift away from, you know, stack them high, sell them cheap towards more of this high quality, durable products. And I think it actually highlights the importance of businesses connecting directly with consumers across all surfaces. So for example, more than three in four, but 76% of shoppers globally are looking to spend money on quality products that are durable. Now that's a shift, you know, there's about 46% of consumers would switch to a rival brand for a superior product. Can I just clarify a term on that? Like, it does sound a bit like before they didn't. Did shoppers ever really say, well, I'm not really after a quality product? Are you suggesting that this kind of fast cycling is changing? I think one of the things that has shifted around sort of this Black Friday, Cyber Monday selling season is it was all about sort of steals and deals. It was all about getting the greatest discount possible. And now what's happening is people still want a discount, but they're looking for a bit of an arbitrage opportunity. They're looking for a great product that a month ago they wanted, but was too expensive, but now might actually be at the right price point for them. And I think there's no doubt about it. If you look at younger generations, bargain hunting to get value for money frankly, before the bills bite, is really important. 57% of consumers plan to spend the same amount as last year's Black Friday, Cyber Monday, or even more before they feel the pinch of, of what they say are, are price hikes that are coming. And this is very acute for Gen Z. But I think that the one thing that has, is now no longer um, a fad, but almost steady state is that 
Both businesses and consumers tell us that they will not budge on sustainability despite the wallet squeeze. In fact, this idea, there was this, a term a couple of years ago um, called conscious consumerism. And you saw a lot of these shoe companies, you buy one shoe, they gave away another shoe, or a sunglass company, you buy a pair of sunglasses, they, they gave away one for free to someone in need. That was sort of looked at as almost like a marketing tactic. Whereas what we've noticed is that's not a marketing tactic. Conscious consumerism is really this steady state way of buying now. In fact, one thing that I, I, I've been feeling even in my own buying behavior is when I buy a product from a brand, it sort of now feels like it is my way of voting with my wallet to support that brand, that product, that way of doing business. And I think that is more pronounced now than ever before. One trend in recent years has been the creator economy as something that's, I suppose, not just for super motivated people like yourself who start businesses or who do things at the, the kitchen table, which then end up with a much bigger uh, kitchen table or indeed kitchen tables uh, all over the world. But influencers, if you like, who are part of the product themselves, they're on YouTube, they're on Instagram, and they're monetizing their audience online. How do you see this new creator economy fitting with the wider or even the traditional world of commerce and all the, the rules that I suppose we thought governed it? And I might have said, well, I can probably draw you a graph or certainly one of my, my colleagues could that said, well, this is what's likely to happen in a recession. Is that graph now more variable because of this trend? Well, there's a couple of things that have sort of happened the last couple of years. If you go back to go back 50 years, go back 30 years, 20 years ago, people that had influence, celebrities, actors, musicians, they were often connected to a product in a very promotional way. So this is like, you know, Brad Pitt being in an ad for a watch company, or it would be, you know, Mick Jagger being in an ad for, I don't know, uh, some, some product, uh, Apple, for example, uh, an Apple product. There was a connection to the product, but it always kind of felt like, a promotion it always felt like sponsorship. What started to happen, and, and by the way, probably the best example of, of, of that is in 1982, Michael Jordan creating the Jordan brand with Nike. He kind of changed everything because all of a sudden now it wasn't a promotional product. Arguably one of the best sneakers to play basketball was the Jordan sneaker. So it didn't feel like he was just slapping his logo on a pair of generic sneakers. It felt like he was involved in the R&D process. It felt like he was involved with the brand. But Michael Jordan did not own the Jordan brand. He was paid a royalty. Nike actually owned the brand. And that was sort of the way it kind of, you know, it kind of happened. In the last couple of years, you began to see the canonical example, I guess, at this point is, is people like Kylie Jenner creating Kylie Cosmetics or Kim Kardashian creating Skims, uh, her shapewear line which actually are not promotional products, which in the category of cosmetics or shapewear, in both those categories, they are the leading product for some demographics in some areas. And they own the brand themselves. Now, why were they able to do so? Because fundamentally, they had an idea, they had access to manufacturing, but they also had distribution. They also had the ability to access all of these consumers and fans through social media and their own, uh, their own channels. So that sort of created this, this interesting new philosophy, a new, new, new concept, whereby you have a collision between people that create content uh, and create media, but also commerce. And, and this sort of collision of commerce and, and creators has sort of led to this creator economy, which I think is really fascinating. So ultimately, what I think, what I, what I think we're seeing here is that 
Brands of all kinds are now a lot more comfortable partnering in a much deeper way with these sort of influencers and with people online. In fact, one of the things that I think is from a consumer perspective is important is if there is an influencer or there is a creator that you watch on YouTube or that you're really excited by because, you know, you read their blog posts and maybe they're a reporter or there's someone who, who covers a particular topic for you. Them endorsing a product, especially a product that they are deeply involved with, will create a much higher conversion rate because I trust this person. I read Anne's columns and I read what Anne is writing. And if Anne believes that this is the best you know, coffee company, I, I like her. I, I've been reading her stuff for years. I'm going to go and buy that coffee. I now realize I've great... missed a massive niche in the market. You, you there, have. Harvey, you, with, you are a content creator. You, you, you are absolutely an influencer here. But then you also have these mega creators, these mega influencers like Mr. Beast, who's this incredible phenomenon and someone who's who has this sort of genius of understanding how to build an audience, how to provide value for his audience. And, and you know, he's been on Shopify since he had like 3 million subscribers on YouTube. Now he has 100 million subscribers. And so now when he creates Feastables, uh, uh, by by Mr. Beast, which is a chocolate bar company, or he creates the Mr. Beast burger chain, which has hundreds of locations all over the United States. He actually is able to build a business at a trajectory and a, and a velocity that has never been seen ever before in the history of business creation. And but can I just like put it throw in a challenge here because that is extraordinary and those numbers. I mean, they're certainly sort of making my eyes pop. But brands and as far as I understand you, Harvey is saying that they are more comfortable partnering with influencers in this way, right? They're not just trying to get hold of George Clooney to sell more Nespresso. But at the same time, it does seem to me that that weakens the identity of brands because the brand, in a way, is, and I think you've described it very, very well and with lots of great examples there, sort of become the influencer. They become the person on YouTube, they become in some way the followers. And doesn't that have big downside risks for what we thought of as a, as a brand, which has a durability, which may sometimes wax and wane and may have better fortunes one year than the next, but has a consistency to it. And if it's well managed, continues to grow. I mean, that's the Michael Jordan example, I think, right? Which is, you know, we're now 38, 39 years later from when the Jordan brand was created. Michael Jordan does not play basketball anymore, but that brand has durability, has longevity to it. I'll give you another example that I think is is, is also important because it, it sort of, I think it addresses one of the concerns or problems that you uh, you describe, which is, okay, well, if you're Nike, it's easy for you to go sign a big contract with Michael Jordan. But what if you're not Nike? Two weeks ago, Gymshark, which is uh, an incredible brand, global brand, started in the UK by, by Ben Francis. He opened up his first physical store, a flagship store in Regent Street. And again, we'll get into physical retail in just a moment. But the way that Gymshark was able to really get to the scale that they are today, a multi-billion dollar uh, you know, brand that frankly is challenging the likes of Nike and, and Lululemon and, and pretty much every athletic company on the planet, is early on what Ben did was he didn't have a lot of money for marketing, but he was able to identify what he would call micro-influencers, people on social media, but just frankly like personal trainers in London, in the UK area, who had um, a small client base. And he would say, look, you have 20 or 30 clients, uh, or you have 200 followers or 2,000 followers. I'm going to send you some Gymshark apparel, some Gymshark clothing, and I'll send it to you for free. And all I ask is that if you like it, talk about it. And if you don't like it, let me know you don't like it and give me some feedback. That is a great example of how using um, those micro-influencers, those, those communities, 
you were able to build a brand with not a lot of money. And I think Ben would sort of agree that Gymshark would not be this iconic global brand many years later if it wasn't for the leverage of those so small micro-influencers as well. Now, your previous point is a good one, which is like, okay, so Kylie has Kylie Cosmetics, and it's a great brand. And, and I mean, if you if you know the story of, of that cosmetic company, she really cares about the R&D. She cares about the design. She, like The product is something that is her life's work. But if there's a scandal that happens at some point, does that also affect the company? Interesting. And I think, yeah. I th I think it does, but n I don't think it does more so than you finding out that your favorite underwear company or sock company is using practices in their factory which you don't believe are ethical practices. I think the same thing exists across any, every brand. It's just as opposed to talking about a company, you're talking about an individual. So if you take the example that, that you gave us uh, just before we, we fell to talking about that kind of brand risk, which is Mr. Beast, which is just such extraordinary. You might just remind me again of that top line number. A hundred million subscribers. That's not a hundred million views. That means every time he puts out a video, it, it is delivered to a hundred million people directly and it is pushed to them. I mean, that's an unbelievable number. I mean, the Super Bowl doesn't see those type of numbers. Well, I was going to say, they just sounds like numbers that are so off the charts. I'm, I'm taking it on trust that you're right about that one. But what steps would you say he's taking to become such a successful content creator, creative entrepreneur? I do understand that some things are you know better thought through than others. Hit the zeitgeist or just basically the it's the right Kool-Aid. But that is, as you say, that's such a kind of, it sort of breaks the numbers kind of example. Can you just tell us what's been so special about it? it it's, it's value creation. Um, if you watch any of his videos that he does, uh, we actually did a video with him last last week where we sort of created our own version of, of Dragon's Den or Shark Tank with him, where you send him a pitch, uh, I think a 30-second pitch about your business on TikTok. He would review pitches, and he would start giving out $10,000 to the pitches that he thought were the best pitches. He's not asking for equity. He didn't ask for any type of promotion for himself. He just, he is someone that very much pays it forward consistently about those things. And yes, he definitely, you know, when Squid Game first came out and was this sort of cultural hit in the zeitgeist of, of the world, he created his own version of a squid game, didn't harm anyone, and gave away money instead. All of his videos are there not just to entertain, but also to fundamentally pay it forward. And he talks about that some of these videos will cost him a few million dollars, and he's okay with that because ultimately, He's playing a much longer game than any type of, you know, commercial business content creation machine, which is always looking for an ROI. He is looking for indirect ROI over, over a long period of time. And I think that's the reason why he's become the largest content creator on the planet. There's also this other aspect to this whole idea where we as consumers, we as viewers of this content, we want things that are compelling. It's the reason why I think YouTube has become one of the greatest platforms for distribution of, of great content, because we as consumers, we want things that are interesting, but like we all have a bit of a niche. We talked about the Venn diagram, for example. If I'm really into coffee and I'm really into the geeky side and nerdy side of coffee creation, roasting of the beans, pour over methodology, there's probably thousands of videos that I can watch on YouTube that really is interesting just to me. It may not be interesting to you, but that's the cool part of this sort of the internet in general is that everyone can find their own niche there. And I think what a lot of the ones that have been successful have done is they've really honed their content for their particular niche really, really well.
Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. So let's look to that backdrop of slobalisation, high inflation, slow economic growth across a, a lot of the, the main economies and, of course, the, the disruptions and backwash of geopolitics in there too, particularly the war in Ukraine. How important do you think that is to the future of entrepreneurship? What does it change for people who may be thinking, well, I'm good to set up my business, it might start very small, it might end up being big or nearly as big, perhaps, as, as Mr. Beast, but I'm going to have a go. Do you think that that is likely to be something that takes a bit of a knock? I mean, during the pandemic, we saw, if you just look at US Census Bureau data, 2021 saw the highest amount of business registrations since I think 2004. There were 5.3 million new businesses created, business registrations, in, in 2021 in the US alone. So a couple of things I, I think around entrepreneurship. There is this connotation that entrepreneurship is still out of touch for most people. It's either too expensive or it's too complicated. But the interesting part about it is like a lot of people have hobbies, but yet they don't have necessarily 
small businesses. And that's not to say that everyone that has a hobby should commercialize their hobby. But there are a lot of people that have jobs that they just don't really love. They work at places that don't really you know, give them great joy, that don't necessarily give them uh, great meaning, but they do so because they have no choice. What I think is so fascinating about entrepreneurship is that I think it's been the, the best way to self-actualize for a very long time. I and mean, entrepreneurship is as old as, as, you know, as the founding of, of currency. However, the main ingredient to starting a business has historically always been the same thing. It was capital. Do you have money to start a business with? And um, my family are immigrants to Canada. My, my grandfather with my father and a few others and his siblings came over to Canada in 1956 from Hungary after the Holocaust and the Hungarian Revolution. And they sort of became entrepreneurs by necessity. He had an egg stall at a farmer's market, my grandfather. He didn't really necessarily love eggs per se, but entrepreneurship was his way to put a roof over their heads and put food on the table. If the egg business would not have succeeded, they would have lost everything. And I think that type of risk or that type of uncertainty about entrepreneurship, that it's sort of, if, you, if it doesn't work, we lose everything, has created this sense of entrepreneurship is scary and, and not for everyone. But one of the cool parts about being president of Shopify the last you know, decade and a half or so is that I have watched random people with no ex business experience turn their small hobby into a business and that business grow to be a million dollar, billion dollar business. That's the Albert story, the Fig story, the Gymshark story. And I think one of the things that has made it much easier is technology. This idea that you can set up a store right now at your mom's kitchen table or at a coffee shop, and you can, within a matter of an hour, be selling to a global audience, that really, really matters. And that was not possible even, even 20 years ago. And so I think this idea of entrepreneurship being more accessible, being less expensive, whereas if you start something and it failed, you can try three other things and not necessarily have to go and go into debt over it. That I think is a really, really good thing. Well, that's what we're trying to do. We want to create more surface area so more people that have ideas in the shower can take that idea and after they get out of the shower, go and Hopefully, actually try their hand at this thing. Generally, it depends on the product. Um, but I do think a lot of people, perhaps young people are entrepreneurs almost without knowing it. And one thing that's happened with the flattening of platforms and Shopify is, I think, one prime example is that it's a service. It's there. They know about it. I was talking to a friend of uh, my daughter who has, I think, slightly more financial acumen. He said, well, I've been buying vintage clothes off one site and selling it on another one because <laughs> this was not flattering to my generation. She said, they're all these middle-aged moms. They've got cool stuff, but they don't really know what it's worth. It's amazing. Uh, it's thought, amazing. Well, I thought, thanks, honey. You're not coming around again for a while. And at the same time, I completely understood what she's saying. She's like, you have things in your wardrobe and you don't know what young people would actually think has got value and you probably will just sell it for too little. Now, would she think of herself, and I'm going to turn this question to you, but would she think of that as a founder's mentality enough? Or do you think there's also something that founders like yourself can do more of to sort of bring down that threshold where some people think of themselves as entrepreneurs and others are just like, I do this thing that maybe with a bit more thought, she might grow that into something other than, you know, just being a bit cheeky to me. So the reason that entrepreneurship is not just my job, but it's also the thing that I, I self-identify by is because I, I think it's, it's, it's a way for you to build a business, but it's also the way you do kind of anything. Um, when I was 13 years old, more than anything in the world, it's going to sound really silly, but I wanted to be a DJ and no one would hire me to be a DJ because I was 13 and I didn't know how to DJ. My, my father, who didn't have very much money to help me start a business, DJ business, said to me, though, hey, if you can't get a job being a DJ, why don't you start your own DJ company and hire yourself? And again, not having much money, 
he made me a business card when I was 13. It was kind of made on the, the printer at home, oh, you know, wonderful. kind of a crappy kind of printout. But it said, but it said Harley Finkelstein DJ. And immediately my identity changed. Now I actually had the audacity. I had the permission to go and try my hand at, at entrepreneurship, but also DJing through entrepreneurship. When I got to college, when I was 17, I went to McGill University. My, my parents lost everything, uh, unfortunately, financially, and I had to support myself. And once again, I pulled out this tool out of my pocket called entrepreneurship, and I started selling t-shirts to the local university. So the way that I think about entrepreneurship and, or the founder's mentality is that it allows you to take this path. If you can think about it in sort of a fast, agile, adaptable way, you can actually solve a lot of problems with this tool called entrepreneurship. And Tim Cook famously has talked about how Steve Jobs taught him that focus is key. And so I think part of that, like that founder's mentality is the need to keep at the forefront of, of anything, the simplicity. So not to complicate things. So your daughter's friend saying, I buy something here and I sell it there for more money. You may say, well, is that really a business? Is that really, uh, is that going to be a multi-billionaire company? Maybe not, but maybe that particular person's focus is just to make a couple extra dollars so they can afford tuition, they can afford to go out on weekends. That in itself is entrepreneurship. And that's why I think it's one of the greatest tools that humans have to solve problems. And that's something I know that you advocate for. You're a board member of CBC in Canada, but you're also a dragon on CBC Dragon's Den, Next Gen Den. What changes, if any, do you see then if we think back, you know, Dragon's Den was also such a sort of breakthrough idea that people would really put themselves out there and go through quite a lot, you know, to get themselves and get what they were selling out there. And I think that certainly changed a lot of views here in the, in the UK about what it took to be an entrepreneur. So you see it close up. What changes do you see generationally? I think that this idea of failure being this this sort of bad thing that if you fail, you know, have this, you know, it's on your forehead, I failed at this thing. I think that is sort of changing. I think that part of it is that the cost of failure today, you know, 2022 is about as low as it's ever been. And I mean that, I mean, I can back it up with data, but I think it's just, it's obvious that you can try something and it doesn't work, it's okay. The reason that whether it's Dragon's Den or Shark Tank or these entrepreneurship competitions are so valuable is because it invites more people in to participate. And not everyone, you know, everyone has sort of a different version of success. I think one of the things that, that we as sort of society poses on our entrepreneurs and our founders is we say, look, you're only successful if you raise a bunch of money and then eventually you get acquired or you go public. I have, you know, because we have millions of merchants on the platform, I get a chance to meet merchants whose only reason for being an entrepreneur is that they make the most delicious barbecue sauce in the world, or they believe so, and they simply want to share it with other people. Or that they work at a, a retail store, they work at a restaurant, they got a reduction of hours, and they want to be able to start a business or be an entrepreneur to supplement their income. So I think one of the things that, that these shows or the, this content around entrepreneurship has done is it invites more people in. Now, to be clear, it also glamorizes it. And that's always been my sort of issue with all these shows, including Dragon's Den and Shark Tank and all these shows, is that let's not pretend like entrepreneurship is easy. It is not easy. What is better today than it was ever before is this idea that if you fail, it's going to destroy you, that you're going to walk around with a brand of yourself, self-identity, that you are a failure. Where failure, I think, for, for sort of the younger generations, and I sort of put myself almost in that category, although I think I'm the oldest millennial on the planet just by year of birth, is that we view failure as the discovery of something that did not work. 
And we put that discovery in our pocket for the next go about. And the cool part is companies, you know, just going back to Ben and Gymshark, these companies that were created like seven years ago are now global leaders. Being able to be, to be a competitor to Nike in seven years, it, which is, it wasn't possible in previous vintages of entrepreneurship and business building. And that is happening every day now. Well, it is happening every day, but we, you know, we've got to be realistic that the backdrop is slowing sales growth. Obviously, that's a, not only what happens on Shopify, it's happening everywhere. And we're seeing a lot of pivots of businesses that, that we write about who are bringing in alternative revenue streams. And in, in the case of, of Shopify, that is also lending money, you know, sort of fronting money up to people who use your service. Now, that's very interesting because it obviously it keeps money flowing through the system and offsets some of the decline that, that you'll be seeing in sales. But it also gets more complicated, doesn't it? And I think of interviews I've done with people like Klarna and other lenders, it's much more regulatory in some ways. It's easy to get tangled up there. And there's also a certain responsibility, perhaps a different kind of responsibility to lending money to simply saying, here's the platform. You know, we obviously there's certain things you can and can't sell on a platform, but it just seems to be a bit more kind of fraught. And I wondered what you made of that. Look, I think, you know, our ambition is to be the entrepreneurship company. I think to be the entrepreneurship company, you need to be there in good times and, and not so good times. The reason that we've we've now given out more than four billion dollars of, of capital for cash advances and loans to merchants is, is not because we had this ambition to ever be, you know, a lender. It's because we had this ambition to help entrepreneurs. And it turns out banks don't do a very good job of helping entrepreneurs and small businesses when they're just getting started, which is exactly the time when they actually need the capital. They tend to lend after that there's enough runway that the, the liability is, is, is much lower. However, we simply bring a software approach to it. We say, okay, look, we know based on your sell-through rates, your traffic, your conversion rate, your refunds, your approval rates on credit cards to your customers, we think we can do a really good job of effectively making a decision very early on whether or not it is a good idea to lend you money or not. We can do so much earlier than most financial institutions, most banks can do that. We also have today something in the neighborhood of $5 billion of cash on our balance sheet that we've raised over the years post being, becoming a public company. So with those two things, wait a second, we can do something that, that is really valuable to small businesses, and we can do so in a way that actually does not put Shopify at risk because we have enough information to make really, really smart but some underwriting of, Some decisions. of them are not going to make it, aren't they? And some of them are going to have difficulty. That's right. Yeah, and some of them. But, but the key for us, though, is that the ones that do by far offset the ones that don't. And the ones that do make it go really, really large, never leave Shopify. And we become more than simply their e-commerce provider. We power all their physical stores at the point of sale. We become their fulfillment and shipping partner. We become their capital partner, their payment partner. So part of what we're trying to do is, is invite as many people into Shopify as possible, make it as easy as possible to get started, and then knowingly, not all, not all will succeed, but the ones who will stay with us for a very, very long time. But your other point, and that I thought was so interesting, is you said it, it, it is getting more difficult. And certainly on the backdrop of post-COVID, the current capital markets, the current economy. Well, I was just thinking about everybody's sales growth is, you know, is, is not, not as healthy as it was in that sense. That, that, that's right. You're, and you're absolutely right. And, and people, there's uncertainty. Inflation's higher than it's been, certainly, I think, in my, in my entire lifetime. One thing, though, that I think is really, really valuable is this idea of where is retail happening? So if you go back to... 300 years ago, retail always happened at the town square. That's where the baker sold bread and the cobbler sold their shoes. The reason that the town square was the fundamental place where retail took place or commerce happened was because that's where people were spending their time. 
One of the things I think that is important to understand as we sort of you know leave 2022 and go into 2023 and, and into the future is that currently the, the modern day town square is not online or offline or on so it's kind of everywhere. And that each of us as consumers, we actually, for the first time ever, are beginning to dictate to our favorite brands, this is how I want to purchase. I want to buy online, but pick up in store. I want to go into a great physical location and I, I want to have a coffee in the physical location. I want to go shopping, but then you don't, I don't want to carry my stuff out because I'm going shopping elsewhere. Just ship it to me. In some cases, I want to pay with buy now, pay later, or I want to be able to you know, have a really easy return policy. One of the things I think that's fundamental to, if, you're, if you're going to study the future of retail and commerce is it is going to happen absolutely everywhere. And the brands that will be most successful will not talk about things like channel conflict. And you hear this from a lot of the old traditional retailers. Well, they'll say, you know, offline is hurting online and online is hurting offline. Rather, the most successful retailers and brands going forward will have this almost channel agnostic perspective that we don't really care if you come into our store and don't buy anything because we know that that's in-store experience. We try on a pair of shoes that may increase your propensity to purchase online later on. And, you know, you think about Harrods, for example, in London. I mean, I, I've been to Harrods a dozen times. I probably have purchased something one or two times when I've been in there. Sometimes I'm just playing with the puppies. Um, sometimes I'm at their food court. But the fact that I go in there and have this great experience means that when I am ready to buy something, I likely will go back there because I know it's a great experience and I've seen what they have on their shelves. And I think that retail everywhere concept is really, really important. Perhaps last big thought before we close, we talked there about being more channel agnostic in, in the jargon. So what do you think the big business trends are in the coming years? You've talked about us having very multifarious retail experience. I like your idea that you might walk into store and not buy something, but it somehow has value. And I wonder if sometimes well, the physical retailers have quite got that message when they're sort of, are you going to buy something or get out, lady? You know. But I think that's very interesting. I think there is certainly... So much more to be said about these flatter platforms and your subscription model there for enabling people to be sellers. But have, what have I missed? I think if you listen, to, if you go to any retail conference, industry conference, you'll hear this term omni-channel or multi-channel a million times. I mean, again, that's the wrong way to think about it. I think that in the next two years or so, and 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 I hope you'll you'll call me out in this two years from now, and you'll call me back and say, okay, you were you were absolutely wrong or you were right. But I really believe the next two years, talking about omni-channel will be like talking about the color TV. You don't say the color TV. Every TV is fundamentally color TV. I think that you will see most, if not all brands, will simply be multi-channel by default. I think that's going to be the first thing. The second thing is, I think retail will be everywhere and will be very experiential. Consumers are now able to buy things anywhere from anyone from their homes. And if you don't have differentiation, I think you're joining a race of margin erosion. And so I think the retailers that will be most successful will have this incredible brand, this incredible experience for their consumers. Otherwise, it's just going to be a competition to who can sell the cheapest thing. And I don't think that's what consumers want. The second thing I think that's really, really important is that this idea of like social commerce, for example, we have to be a little bit more patient on some of these things, right? Within like, if you look at commerce happening on TikTok or YouTube or across any of the meta surfaces, you would say, well, I'm not really buying very much right now on Instagram. Well, that's true. But right now, Instagram may be for you used as a place to discover new brands or new types of products. In the future, however, 
you may actually complete the purchase directly on one of those surfaces, many of which are powered by Shopify. And so for us, what's really cool is, you know, GMV through through those type of social media surfaces grew 5x, five times faster uh, Q2 of this year over the previous year. And that will continue to grow, which we think is really, really cool. Maybe the last thing I think that's also really important just to say is like, if you think about TikTok, there's a hashtag, which is TikTok made me buy it. And TikTok Maybe Buy It has something in the neighborhood, I think it's 26 billion mentions on TikTok. So this idea of using some of these social platforms and some of these new surface areas where consumers and people are spending their time to not only engage with a, a potential consumer, but simply add value. Again, going back to the coffee example, if you're a coffee company, a coffee brand, just start talking about some of the cool stuff about your coffee company. Talk about the beans you use, where it's made, why you started it, tell your story. At some point, some of those content consumers will actually become buyers of your products. And I think that will continue over time. But um, ultimately, I think it's gonna be some of the most exciting times of retail in the next 10 years of the last 100 years or so. And I think it's gonna be immersive, it's gonna be fun again, and it's going to be everywhere. Before we say goodbye to you, I can't resist asking you, what's the last fun thing that you bought via Shopify? Oh, um, I'm using an Ember mug. I actually don't have it here because uh, it's uh, I left it at home today. But I'm using an Ember mug, E-M-B-E-R. It's a, a coffee mug, so my coffee doesn't actually get cold. It stays at the perfect temperature, oh, I which I think I have it set on Excellent. 153 degrees or something like that uh, Fahrenheit. Like, it's such a simple thing. It's a coffee mug. But the fact that from the second I start sipping it to the end of the mug of coffee, it's at the perfect temperature, I think is absolutely amazing. So Ember would be one thing uh, that I that I, I really love. And I wear a black t-shirt every day. And you may think, well, who cares, black t-shirt? But there's a company called James Purse. Um, they have retail stores all over the world, which powered by Shopify, physical retail stores and online. And James, the brand, but also the, the person, he thinks more about black t-shirts and t-shirts in general than anybody else I've ever met. And so I love the James Purse brand and t-shirts. I think they're an amazing job, but it's because like they do one thing really, really well, and it's mostly t-shirts and they're exceptional. And as you're Canadian, you're getting, I think you're going to like my latest purchase, which I put so much work into finding and getting to the UK. And it's the Fraser Fur Christmas candle, which is just a wonderful scented Lovely. candle. And for about two years, because of all the, the difficulties of shipping, et cetera, the pandemic it was almost impossible to get in the UK. And I have this, this stash of them, like the sort of Gollum, oh, collect, cool. the Gollum collection of the most delicious Canadian scented candle you can ever sniff. Thank you so much, Harley Finkelstein, president of Shopify. I think it's been a fascinating conversation for me, and I hope it was for you too. It was. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for taking an interest in, in this topic. Uh, this is all I think about all the time, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for this conversation. It was a lot of fun. I think we got that. Uh, I'm Anne McElvoy. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.